Hello, everyone. It's Arielle again, and I hope you're all staying warm as we tune into our series on reducing stigma to improve maternal health, practice, and policy for alcohol and substance use in pregnancy. Today will be part two of our discussion about stigma in medicine, especially when considering prenatal care. Our speaker is Dr. Kim McKay, an OBGYN in Sioux Falls with Abira Health, and she'll be sharing her experiences as a provider for pregnant women. As always, thank you so much for listening and take care. Hi, I'm Dr. Kimberly McKay. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist that works in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I work for Avera Health. Um, I'm a South Dakota kid that grew up on the western side of the state in a town called Belfouche, and I've done nearly all my education um, in, in the state of South Dakota and um, throughout the last 15 or 16 years of practice um, have contributed at the state level um, towards our understanding of maternal health and opportunities that we can take to improve the health of our moms and subsequently our babies. I was asked to contribute to this project for that reason, and I hope what I bring to the table can help change the narrative around the stigma of substance use disorder in pregnancy. In the year 2000, I was a brand new resident. Um, I went to the University of Kansas in Wichita, and I was working in a community health hospital that served a lot of patients of low socioeconomic status. And I had seen true health care disparity in um, South Dakota, but it wasn't like this. Um, looking back on my medical school education, I probably could have looked a lot closer and, and seen some of the same things. So I don't mean to single out Kansas by any means, but certainly it, it was um, very illustrative of, of the times, right? At the time, true healthcare reform really was a, seen as a consequence or was, it was really merely a whispered idea um, on the political field. It was seen as a consequence um, of success and poverty was seen as a consequence of one's actions and decisions. It certainly wasn't seen as um, something that um, happened to you. It was again, a consequence. And of course, access to healthcare was seen really as choice. Like if you just tried hard enough, you would have the money be, to be able to support it. My first interactions um, with addiction in general happened very quickly, my first week on the floor. And it was during this time that I thought I was taught by my attendings, and again, this was a pervasive idea at the time, that, that when somebody came and accessed healthcare on your floor, it was really an opportunity to catch someone in order to save their baby. So what we were taught is drug screens. Um, do, we did them without consent. There wasn't a lot of regulation around that, certainly not a lot of regard for patient rights. Um, we often called social services um, or the police. We very frequently used shame and blame to try to affect behavior. And the reason was is because we thought at the time that consequences of one's actions could inspire people to change. We absolutely did nothing to acknowledge that addiction was a medical issue, a neurobiologic problem um, that needed to be treated. And little did I know at the time that I was also contributing to the problem because we were engaging um, in unsafe prescribing practices. Um, we were using a lot of shame and blame. And through this, um, 
we thought through the stigmatizing, through the punishing, that we could get a pregnant patient um, to change and to save their baby. But the other thing that you have to know about when I was going through residency, um, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, a lot of people my age, um, but in 2010, the opioid crisis was at its peak and people did finally start paying attention. The medical community was coming to terms with a problem it had helped create and we had been blissfully ignorant of our own unsafe practices and as it related to narcotic prescriptions and the gateway that they really provided to substance use disorder. We were always surprised when patients would access care through the emergency department when they would you know, present with complaints of acute pain um, for small things and demand another prescription. And it was during this time that according um, to the CDC that the United States saw a 400% increase in the op opioid deaths among women. What you also may not know is that during this time, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid began basing reimbursement to hospitals on patient satisfaction scores. And of course, the infamous pain score. And many physicians during this time were distraught and angry and tired, and we were totally at a loss for what to do. Do we give patients a prescription to keep them happy and to keep our scores up, or do we just say no? And so we were caught in this very terrible tension of trying to do the right thing, which often led patients to escalate their behaviors during episodes of active withdrawal, withdrawal from a substance use. And in the end, we were ill-equipped um, and did not see this as an opportunity to connect with patients in their pain and in their suffering and to be able to address their medical needs in a way that would help them maintain um, abstinence from, from substance use. It was during this time we began to rethink how we treated substance use disorder. I had an attending years ago that taught me the following. If you listen to what your patients tell you, they will tell you what you need and they will give you the answer of their diagnosis. In 2010, I had a pretty significant patient interaction um, that really, really changed me. I had a, a pregnant mom came to, who came to me for prenatal care. And at one of her visits, I noticed that she was wearing an alcohol monitoring bracelet. And we talked about it. Um, the system right now is really fragmented. It's hard to know as a clinician, how do you connect with um, parole officers who are doing the monitoring? How do you connect with um, the people who are actively involved with the patient's treatment? And I later found out that this same patient was also using methadone through her pregnancy. And I was mad. I, I was upset that she hadn't disclosed that to me. And so when I asked her why, again, using probably shame and blame, um, I said, why didn't you tell me? And she said, because I didn't know what you would do. And she was right. Okay, you know, we often see medication-assisted treatment, or at least at the time, it was seen as something that was a weakness that you were enabling. But as we found out in the last 10 years, um, just from the research itself, that medication-assisted treatment stabilizes a chronic condition like substance use. And in pregnancy, it means we can then partner with our patients and connect them to other services 
it means they can be honest about their struggles. And so we can start to figure out how to help their spirits. Pregnant people have always been seen as a vessel for the baby. And what we do know is that their moms are not perfect. Um, moms don't quit struggling. They don't quit hurting and they don't quit having issues with addiction just because they become pregnant. But the hope in this message is that pregnancy often provides a very unique opportunity for a person to change. So I think as we move forward with how we help patients, we have to really see pregnancy as an opportunity to connect patients to resource, resources and to um, treat their ongoing medical conditions. We as clinicians forget sometimes that we have the power. The power we hold over patients is incredible. We are mandatory reporters. We have a DEA number. We get to choose to believe or disbelieve stories. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, not the patient. Um, and it's because of this that we need to own our own internal biases and examine them and then dispense of them. They do not serve us and they most importantly do not serve our patients. We all embrace what we know. My old views on substance use disorder have changed over time. And what I thought addiction was is not what it actually is. Substance use disorder is not a choice. It's not a moral failing. It is also not untreatable and it is not hopeless. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um, is my um, board certification that really has um, done a lot of work around this issue. And what I would encourage, not just obstetrician gynecologists, but any clinician who's taking care of patients, um, I would encourage them to do the following. Number one, protect and preserve patient autonomy and confidentiality within the confines of the law. Number two, used evidence-based practices for interventions like medication-assisted treatment. Number three, understand that a mom and a baby are best together and that our interventions should and can support that. Number four, substance use disorder affects everyone, not just those people that you suspect. So routine screening practices should be applied equally through validated screening tools. And finally, a pregnancy is not just about the baby. A pregnant person is not just a vessel. They're a human and they deserve every ounce and bit of dignity and respect that we can give them and that we have to offer. <laughs>